I'm Brooke Hempel. I am head of research at Barna Group, doing research on the church and its intersection with faith and culture, reading and learning about people's perspectives on racial justice in our country. I was compelled to take a stance and to respond. And I'm Susan Robinson. I'm a big advocate for healing and hearing the pain and frustration, the fear that my friends of color were experiencing just compelled me to get more educated and more involved in the conversation about race in America. Race from Redemption exists to provide firsthand testimonies along with biblically and factually accurate nonpartisan content so that our listeners are empowered to pursue racial redemption right where they are planted. Join us as we listen, learn, lament, repent, and celebrate the restorative work Jesus is doing in our midst. Today, we are so blessed to have Larissa Lamb and Baldwin Chu with us on the podcast to share from their own story, a part of history that many Americans are probably unaware of. I myself was not um, deeply aware of this. It's the intersection between Chinese and African-American history in the South. So great to have you all on the podcast. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Before we dive into your story, because I really want you all to tell your story, I really want our listeners to hear a little bit about what you two are up to now, because you have a really unusual and unique business model and ministry and and, in the entertainment business and how you use that for education. And just so our listeners know, Larissa and I were actually roommates right after college when we lived in Los Angeles. She's still there for a short time, which ended in me leaving to go get married. So unfortunately, (laughs) you left us abandoned ship. All single people got left behind. (laughs) And Larissa was an awesome wedding singers. <laughs> I will always look through and remember her every time I see my wedding pictures. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> but anyway, you've gone on to do so many things in the music industry and you both have so many other gifts that you use in various ways. So I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about yourselves now before we dive into your family stories also. Superhero fly through the sky and save the whole world instead of living a lie. No more laughing till you're silly and you're out of your mind. When the girl to your left and the boy down the cries. No more living in a nation that has money to store. Well, you know, as you mentioned, um, I've been working in the music industry for about 20 years. Whew, that sounds like a long time. Um, yes, I started She's when I was 22. two. Um, <laughs> I started from the womb um, and I, you know, I was running a record label as a CFO um, and had also sung with a group called Nitro Praise. Um, I don't know if any of the audience might know that. Um, it's <laughs> dance. I know, Nitro Praise. It's praise and worship music done to like a dance beat. You guys were ahead of your time. We were very much. It was before EDM was even EDM. Um, and um, I toured with that group while I was also running the record label um, and became a solo artist. I toured the country as a solo artist and had released four solo albums of original music and also have written music for television, film, and video games, uh, most notably for the Oprah Winfrey show. I don't know if anybody has heard of Oprah. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of cool to say that I worked for Oprah. Uh, but, you know, I was also 
also um, a TV host as well. And I hosted a show for JCTV, TBN's Youth Network, um, for nine years with um, some of you may know uh, Pastor Rich Wilkerson Jr. And um, he was my co host, among other people. And I've uh, been in this marriage with my husband partnering to do this marriage. As this marriage. To this <laughs> marriage. <laughs> the only marriage. You are also known as only one. Only and this one, is the only yeah. marriage I've ever had. <laughs> you got a two for one offer deal. <laughs> this is the only marriage. Um, we also co-host a podcast um, currently called The Love Discovery and Dim, Dim Sum, <laughs> where we talk about issues of culture and race um, through our Asian American experience and also little known history, which I know we're going to talk about today. Uh, and yeah, and, and we made a documentary that I think we're going to talk about a little bit more, but I'm going to punt it over to you, only one. All right. <laughs> Well, uh, so I guess I have two names. Only one is my hip hop name. Uh, it's spelled uh, O-N-L-Y-W-O-N. And uh, just people always ask you, how'd you get your name? So it basically it means though I'm only one person, I haven't lost to the pressures of the world, but I've won because of the only one. So my real name is Baldwin Chu. And uh, I am a hip hop artist slash beatboxer. But, and I've been doing that for a very long time as well. Some might say I'm one of the first uh, Asian-American uh, bilingual hip-hop artists out there. But I also got my degree in engineering because I was a good good Chinese boy. <laughs> and I, I followed my, my path to staying in school and not following my dreams in the entertainment industry. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I did continue it on the side, did ministry through music, entertainment, acted, and stuff like that. And now I'm in full-time using entertainment, arts, media, along with my partner in crime, Larissa. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I just love how God has kind of intertwined your lives. And it's just so cool to hear how you've used all these different gifts that he's given you for different purposes. So I've just enjoyed seeing how you take each new year on. So yeah, it's been fantastic. It's definitely a walk of faith every single day. We have no yeah. idea what's going to happen. And guess what? The rest of the world right now has no <laughs> idea what's going to happen. So welcome to our world. Yeah, I like to say our life is not boring. It is not <laughs> boring for sure. For sure. So I'm just kind of getting to know you guys. Uh, Brooke sent me an email that had a link to the documentary that you guys have coming out. There's a shorter version called Finding Cleveland. Yes. Right. right? And then the, the extended version is called Far East, Deep South. Yes. That's correct. Far East, Deep South is Man. our newest, latest endeavor. <laughs> I know I emailed you guys back as soon as I watched it to let you know, like, I was so moved. I found myself laughing and then crying and just sitting in awe, learning things that I had no idea about the history of our country and the intersection of the Asian American community, the Black community, the Southern U.S., so many different layers that you guys just educated us on through this documentary. I'd love if we could take a second to jump into that and yeah, absolutely. give a little background on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be great. Do you guys yeah. want to maybe start by telling us how you got into this documentary and what inspired you to do it? Well, um, the documentary started off as just a family home video. Um, I had heard from my my dad a long time ago that I might have a, um, my grandfather and great-grandfather were in Mississippi at some point, but we never really talked about it. And finally, uh, my brother had the bright idea to say, let's explore this more. If they're really in Mississippi, let's make a family trip out there and figure out what, why are these two old Chinese people buried in Mississippi? Well, honestly, <laughs> it wasn't even that much. It was really, let's, let's go visit the gravesite to yes. pay our mm -hmm. respects. Yeah, yeah, that was the first That was thing. really what it was. And that's and all it was you knew. 
and that was, it was a family vacation. They didn't even know where the cemetery was. I mean, there's a scene in our film where our brother-in-law literally thought he was just going to drive around town. He's like, <laughs> how big can the town be? We'll just go to every cemetery and we'll just go look for it. We, we've got to be yeah. able to find it at some point, right? So we started off with just the camera in hand saying, let's just document this family trip. So, like any any other tourist yeah. would, you know. So our daughter would know someday because she might forget. Right. <laughs> you know? And so we ended up going to Cleveland, Mississippi, and our lives would change forever um, because as um, people will see in the film, we come through not only some of remarkable personal discoveries, but we end up uncovering this little known history about the Chinese in the South um, that we also had no idea. I mean, I literally Mm. thought, I grew up in California. I literally thought going to Mississippi, we'd find two Chinese men buried there, Baldwin's grandfather and (laughs) great-grandfather. We'd go there, visit, call it a day, come home. Um, and then we end up finding that's this. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. That's <laughs> no. why we made a movie. You know, we find the the Mississippi Delta Chinese Heritage Museum um, where I'm like, why is there a Chinese museum in the middle of Mississippi? <laughs> I'm like, there had to have been a significant population to warrant a museum. Mm-hmm. So we walk in there and there's just all these photos and just family after family that had lived in the Mississippi Delta over generations. And, and then I didn't realize that they were also subject to the Jim Crow laws. And, and, you know, we all learn about segregation and Jim Crow laws in our history books. And, you know, personally, I had never felt, I think, a connection to the, the African-American historical experience here in the United States. And, and that was like the first moment for me where I was like, oh my gosh, our people were, were, you know, discriminated in the same way during that time period of the Jim Crow laws. And I'm like, what? You know, this is crazy. And why don't people know about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, now I think at that point when we walked in the museum, I had just recently learned, maybe just a couple years before that first trip over there, about the Chinese Exclusion Act. I was never taught that in school growing up. I didn't really know. It wasn't until we I moved to L.A. that I started meeting some advocacy groups that, that knew about it and I got educated on it. And then we saw a sign at the museum that talked about the Chinese Exclusion Act. And I'm just like, wait. This old Chinese community not only had to go through segregation and those types of segregated laws, but they also had the Chinese Exclusion Act mm-hmm. on top of that. It's like, what was life like? Which back can then? you and, unpack that for our listeners? Because I, I agree. I think we weren't taught that in school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a there's a two hour documentary on PBS. <laughs> I can go through the whole thing. No, um, <laughs> it's a great documentary, but we'll, we'll try to give you the short short version. So the Chinese Exclusion Act was enacted in 1882, and it was passed targeting Chinese specifically. Um, and at first, at first um, because. Um, Chinese were taking all the jobs from the Irish community. And so there was a big push predominantly by the Irish community. This is in the wake of the Transcontinental Railroad and a lot of Chinese labor was imported in for the completion of that. And so a lot of the Irish were complaining that the Chinese were taking their jobs, working for low wages, like we need to kind of get rid of the Chinese in this country. And so they enacted a law, the Congress enacted a law, and it's the only law in U.S. history that specifically targeted people for race. Now, Hmm. some other immigration laws normally target by country, but if you were Chinese, even if you were born in this country or lived in this country, or maybe you came from Australia or England or some other place, you would still be subject to, you could not come into this country as a new immigrant and be a laborer. There were exceptions, but you couldn't come into the country to work labor, which is pretty much the main reason people came into the country. So the targeted goal was that um, America brought Chinese in for labor jobs to build this country. But after that, it was completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. The goal of the Chinese Exclusion Act was the hopes that Chinese would leave again and not return, or they would scare them, or they would have 
other laws associated with the Chinese Exclusion Act, such as they couldn't marry outside of Chinese races. They couldn't own land they in many parts land, of the country. Um, yeah, they couldn't vote because the because other part of the citizens. Exclusion Act, you could not become a naturalized citizen mm. um, during the Chinese Exclusion Act. Right. And, and so it became a situation, again, you can't, you're not a citizen you can't vote. You don't have rights. And you can't have a family here. So the only way, you know, there weren't that There many. was restrictions on women, you know, bringing women into the country And as most well. of the Chinese that came in were not women at that time. They mm-hmm. were all laborers. So mm-hmm. they brought the men over. So I would say the Chinese Exclusion Act was just one piece of law, but there were laws upon laws that were also added. And eventually by the early 1900s, the Chinese Exclusion Act actually was a bit of a misnomer because it expanded to include what they call the Asiatic Bard Zone, almost all of Asia mm. and even parts of Africa and Southern and Eastern Eastern Europe. Europe. So it was really the first time our country enacted it, you know, with immigration laws that restricted people. Obviously things have loosened up since then, but, you know, before that people came from Ellis Island or anywhere. It's like, hey, as long as you don't have disease, you can come into the country. Mm -hmm. And in 1882, that all changed with the Chinese Exclusion Act. And you can even see the remnants of it is, even though it's not as restrictive as back then, of a little bit of those restrictions for immigration of really just gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. And this set up the scenario that we saw with Baldwin's father, where he was left basically fatherless because he and his mother were not allowed to come into the country, correct? Right. Correct. Correct. Right. Even though my grandfather and great-grandfather were already in the United States, they could not bring their family over. And they were legally here, slight spoiler alert, <laughs> They were citizens. You know, they had every right to bring their children in, but because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, they could not bring them in. Wow. So... Can you hit on why were Chinese people being recruited to come to Mississippi? How how did that happen? Yeah. Well, that was uh, right after slavery was abolished. So you had a lot of freed slaves. By the way, a lot of the freed slaves moved up north and to the the west to help the Chinese build the Transcontinental Railroad from the west side towards Mm -hmm. Utah. So uh, even though we talked about, um, you know, the Irish bringing in the, the Transcontinental Railroad from the east to the west and Chinese going from west to east, the freed black slaves also ended up joining towards the end to help the Chinese complete that railroad. And because a lot of the blacks left the South, you know, when they were freed, uh, the plantations had less labor. And so... Somebody still had to work those plantations. Yeah, the, the cotton mm-hmm. gin was not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't, the cotton wasn't going to pick itself. So word got out about the Chinese, you know, working... And the railroad. On the and railroad. And so they recruited specifically from China or even other parts of the country for um, Chinese to come. Um, and they, ones that came through China, you know, went up the Mississippi River from New Orleans and they went out to the Mississippi Delta area and ended up working on the farms as um, mm-hmm. sharecroppers, you know, farming the land much, you know, much like the the black community were doing the same. Yeah. And since yeah. by then the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, it was easier for the for the Chinese that are already in the United States to make their way into Mississippi when they're So that was their the initial um, you know, entry yeah. into the the Mississippi mm-hmm. Delta. Wow, what an amazing migration and story. And it, it is really important to understand even the role of the railroad in that and the role of, you know, our country going through reconstruction after the Civil War in that. And all these things played together. They weren't isolated events or incidents. And so it's amazing how that kind of shaped a community that, you know, your ancestors grew up in. Yeah, absolutely. History is very connected. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how were the... Chinese people treated in these communities? What what was their role? How were they accepted? 
One of the most insidious things about the Chinese Exclusion Act is if you ever read any of the writings for people um, are petitioning to enact the Exclusion Act, you know, they're they're talking about Chinese as if we're uncivilized, that we cannot be, you know, assimilated. I mean, it's just some horrendous language that they just like we're barbaric, right? You know, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so um, I think there was that attitude toward the Chinese initially when they first came in. And over time, things progress and hopefully we're making progress and we're, we're not we're not taking steps back, mm. which sometimes it feels like we are. I was going <laughs> to say some of the things that you've described, even in the Exclusion Act and the you know, kind of battle over jobs and labor, it's like these things happen today. We don't have laws directly against them, but there are certain policies that are that are definitely trying to control against flow of jobs and and people feeling like, hey, that's taking my opportunity. So, I mean, these are not new concepts. This this is humanity and the way that we act out against each other, forgetting that we're made in God's image, for sure. Absolutely, and I think you know the the biggest driver of that um, is is the economic threat. You know, yeah. like that's the thing that has I think enacted discriminatory policies over the years is this feeling of economic threat. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we hope to like put a human face on that because you know again part of the the issue is blanketing statements. You know, where you put everybody in the same category, and and that's really where the root of a lot of discrimination and racism lies is where you just generalize. Everybody mm-hmm. is the same that looks a certain way or is from a certain country. And not everybody who people think is from a certain country is really from that country either, you know? So, um, you know, we hope that having these conversations, you know, opens up people's minds that you can't think of race as just one little box. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And I want to point out something that we talk a lot about on this podcast is how important it is to have relationships with people that don't look like you, that maybe have a different background or different ethnicity. Because what you're saying is, is people got to know Mm -hmm. each other in Mississippi, whatever the, the town was, as they got to know their new Chinese neighbors things got better. The, they became friends, that things started to change and they were accepted more in the community. And did you feel like that was the story that you heard, that it was through yeah. the relationship that things got better? It was. And and I will say this, like it was, it's interesting because we, we would do screenings with our first film, you know, around the country back when we could actually meet in person. Right. <sighs> and I remember there was one time we were in Mississippi and a gentleman who was white, you know, stood up in the, in the audience and afterwards during the Q and A, he's like, I didn't exclude anyone because he was just kind of outraged by the Chinese Exclusion Act. And yeah, we're he like, never heard of it, really. He never heard of it. Like, But I never excluded anyone. I'm like, you didn't exclude anyone, but there was a law that excluded everyone. And so there is a separation between one-on-one neighbors, how we treat each other, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. how, the, you know, and, you know, when people have a hard time grappling with like systemic racism or whatever, like the Chinese Exclusion Act is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. It's it's like mm-hmm. that was the system. Yeah. The system is what separated Baldwin's family for generations. You know, it wasn't an individual that was being racist or, you know, discriminatory. It was a policy, a law that was in place and the effects of that policy over time. But it also takes people to repeal that, you know, and so definitely, you know, there were people that finally said over time in 1943, well, partly because they needed China as an ally, they said like, hey, you know, again, it wasn't necessarily because it was wrong that they decided to repeal it, but, mm-hmm. but, but, but it they is, need it. 
but it is also relationships, right? Right. These are the types of things that, again, we're trying to help people know, not because we want to dwell on the victimization of our community, mm-hmm. so that people have a better understanding that, you know, I think there's this this misperception that a lot of Asians in this country are, are you know, just taking our jobs or taking over our neighborhoods or buying up our property or, or they're like, oh, they work hard or, you know, they they're just Taking up our slots in schools, you know. Mm. They all want to just go to Harvard. Mm. I mean, there's this wh- whatever it happens to be, or they're crazy rich Asians, which we're not all crazy rich Asians. Most just are tell not. You. <laughs> um, and and so there's these stereotypes that are, they're being created or these misperceptions. And so you know, I think that's really important to know that even owning a business, like some people like say like, oh, they're they're merchants, they own grocery stores. I'm like. It was not easy. It's not like owning mm-hmm. a store. I mean, now, I mean, even now owning a mom and pop shop is, is difficult, but there was no, you know, SBA loans. There was, you know, there was uh, mm-hmm. like, they basically had to pull their money together. There was together. no government bailout during no, yeah, the Great exactly. Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They pulled their money to start a business. And, you know, his father recounts his great-grandmother telling him like, they worked 24-7. You know, they didn't have days off. They slept in the same. Yeah, they they actually store. lived in their store. Wow. There was no vacation for yeah. them. It was yeah. hard work. And if you count, like it, it didn't even add up to minimum wage if you count all the hours that they were working. Yeah. So you mentioned the Great Depression and the stores that were owned. That was a really interesting thing I learned through your film, too, is that shared experience between Asian and African-Americans, particularly during the Great Depression. Could you maybe talk about that for a minute? Yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's also kind of going back to your your previous question about the relationships. They they were forced to live in the non-white areas, so that means they lived in the black community. That's where their store was, and that's where they lived in the store in the black community. So their their clients and their customers were black, and obviously they started building relationships with them. They knew that they could be trusted. Um, they were they were sharecroppers. Majority of them were sharecroppers, so you know they only get paid a couple times a year. And how are you going to, um, you know, provide for your family when you're only paid once or twice a year? And the Chinese were able to say, "Hey, we have the supplies. We trust you. We have a relationship. Um, you can you can just go on credit. We'll write your name down in a book. And when you get paid, you pay us." And we that- even heard, you know, from someone that in the film, like when they wanted to go buy a house, eventually when they allowed, you know non-whites to own property that, you know, a, a black family went to a Chinese, you know, store to borrow money to, wow. to buy a house. And, and so those are the types of things we don't get to learn in our history books. Mm-hmm. Now there were, you know, eventually there were black store owners too in other neighborhoods, but you know, a, a lot of, in, in the instances we're talking about, we're talking about rural communities, you know, there weren't that many businesses in town. Mm-hmm. And so like the Chinese grocery store happened to be the place where a lot of people got their credit. Oh my goodness. What an amazing shared history. And actually, that's such a beautiful picture of community that they exhibited even in that sort of relationship. Yeah. And my favorite part too about it is when people talk about like the black customers preferred going to a lot of the Chinese stores because they could walk through the front door. You know, I think in our day age, you know, we kind of forget what Jim Crow meant, right? There was quote unquote, colored entrances, right? And so there was no colored entrance at a Chinese store because everybody there was colored. <laughs> mm-hmm. wow. And so people could walk in freely and- And there were actually white people there too, right? There was Italians and Jews. Yeah, who exactly. Were not mm-hmm. white yeah, and some time. of them didn't even necessarily live in the neighborhood, you know, the, the white mm-hmm. community. They, 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 they lived in other parts, the but they door. came they came yeah. through in, and walked through the front door. So everybody used the same entrance. They were treated equally in a Chinese grocery store. So amazing. My goodness. Well, it's given you all, I can tell just by the way you describe it, a really incredible lens on what racism and racial bias and um, justice issues 
Like, how do you think about those and what matters? I can tell that that's really shaped your thinking. And um, I've watched you two really kind of pick up that mantle this year, especially, and talk a lot about our present day reality when it comes to racial justice and racism in our country. And what has this led you all to get involved with uh, over the past year? Well, our big goal with our film is to really get the film into the education system because we really believe that as much as we're having conversations with adults, you know, this is a long term, you know, problem that requires a long term solution. And so getting in, you know, middle school and high school, I think is most appropriate. It's most when kids really understand and are learning about segregation or the American South. And you know, we're not trying to replace existing history. We're trying to just broaden it. We mm-hmm. all learn about segregation. So, and the Chinese were excluded too, and Asians and Mexicans and Indians. I mean, there was, it's not just Chinese that were, you know, affected by Jim Crow. Pretty much any person of color that wasn't white could be subject to Jim Crow laws. Yeah. And then when you think back about, you know, 2020 and, you know, all this racism that have come to light, it's not like, 2020, like all of a sudden people became racist, right? This stuff has been embedded in in their hearts and their minds for a long time. And it stemmed from when they were probably children. So for us to be able to speak out to adults now and address these issues, yes, we can do that. But we have to recognize that it it came from something that they were taught or grown up with while they were children. That's why we want to make sure that we get into the education system so that our children aren't making that same mistake as they grew up, as they unfortunately learned these types of bias and stereotypes and racist thoughts. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the other thing we're trying to accomplish is trying to help people acknowledge and recognize their implicit bias, you know. Um, And in our case, I think when people look at somebody with an Asian face, they automatically default think like, oh, they must not be from here. They must be from another country, which is how we open our movie. And, you know, you ask every person of Asian descent in the U.S., almost every one of us has gotten that question. Hey, Mm -hmm. where are you from? Oh, no, where are you really from? You know, you wouldn't normally, I don't know if you ladies have ever gotten that, but like, where are you from? Where are you really from? Germany? Ukraine? Ireland? You know, like, I mean, we tell them like, oh, we're from L.A. or he's from, you know, Sacramento. Like, that's not good enough of an answer. Like people, no, 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 no. Tell us where you're from. You know, like, and and I understand there's this exoticism or, you know, in some cases, it's not meant to be racist. But this idea that you don't look at someone black, you don't look at somebody white and automatically think they're from another country. And there's this othering and treating, Mm. I think, the Asian community as someone foreign and that we don't belong here. Mm. Um, And so that's partly what we want to show. I mean, we are we should be all be proud of our heritage and our unique, you know, identities that God has created us because God is obviously a God of all nations. Um, at the same time here, specifically in America, you know, we are made of immigrants. You know, that mm-hmm. is the whole fabric of our nation. Yeah. Nobody is from here except for the indigenous people, right? right. Like, they exactly. Over from Asia. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so we, we are all from somewhere. And so it's kind of the language that we use as society to, you know, and, and, we definitely feel like we haven't belonged. We're not American enough. Mm. We're not Asian enough. And and even in the church, if you think about like mainstream, quote unquote, Christian culture, whether it's films, whether it's Christian music. I mean, I did work a little bit in the Christian music side, but all your prominent faces, you know, they're, they're not Asian. You know, mm. even, even pastors. I mean, there's Francis Chan, but there's not a whole lot beyond Mm -hmm. that, that people can nationally recognize. Mm -hmm. You know, I was the only Asian on my talk show with Rich Wilkerson Jr. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there are more of us, you know, the Asian American community is the fastest growing Christian group in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yet you wouldn't know that Mm -hmm. if you looked at just 
you know, the optics on the outside. But the funny thing is like, whenever we went to like Nashville to the Dove Awards or, you know, the, the GMAs and stuff like that, people would always recognize us because we were the, we're the only, only Asians. Asians. Oh, wow. So, they're like, so like, you know, they're like, oh yeah, I remember you. You're the Chinese rapper. I'm like, yeah. Because uh, no. there were no other ones right. around. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and, and and I think the other thing is like we would really like to see the church lead in this conversation, honestly. Mm. And it and it's been heartbreaking to see some of that denial in historically. I think some churches are finally starting to wake up. We're starting to work with Chinese, and I'm not just talking about multi ethnic churches or white dominant churches. Like even the Chinese church has. Been, been waking up to and, and the Asian churches like have been waking up to this issue of race because I think they've been disengaged and, you know, withdrawn from it, just burying their heads in the sand. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's confronting their own racism or even being part of the conversation so people will understand where our community is coming from. It's like, if you don't engage with other people outside your own race, you can never have these conversations of true racial reconciliation. And so we're hoping our film provides a platform, you know, we're doing screenings with churches and partnering with different, um, you know, so it's not just all Asian churches that the model is mm-hmm. hopefully when we're all meet, able to meet again um, is to have different churches of different, you know, ethnic backgrounds come together, watching a film, having discussions, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the meantime, in the virtual space where we're holding the discussions with different Christians from different backgrounds. Now, this year has been particularly interesting because not only have we paid a lot of attention to racial discrimination, but we've also seen some unique um, occurrences of that to the Asian American community because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And you all even did this, uh, I thought it was brilliant, PSA, about this pretty early on in the pandemic, addressing the kind of bias that people were having or even hatred and anger and violence Mm -hmm. that (laughs) has occurred. And so maybe you can share a little bit about that or just what you have you've seen or how you've responded. Yeah, um, our our I, I, I will survive PSA um, we did at the very beginning of the pandemic when people were, you know, lashing out and um, there were attacks on the Asian community because we were mistakenly blamed for the coronavirus. And it was heartbreaking because a lot of people that were being attacked weren't even of Chinese descent, you know, and a lot of them, were, of them like, were Americans and all of them were <laughs> Americans. And, you know, a lot of people, sadly, going back to what we're talking about, this implicit bias, it's like the default was thinking we're not from here. And people were like, go back to your country, go back to China. And we're like, but we're, we're from, from here. here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you go back to Germany, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, you go back to England. Um, you know, I mean, that those are the types of things where there needed to be an education. And, and the PSA we did, we employed our cute daughter because, you know, the best way to diffuse racism is use a cute kid. <laughs> actually, I mean, I, I will say like that actually was brilliant because it was it was disarming. Right. And people were like, OK, I'm going to listen to what she has to say. And it was it really was sweet. sweet. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so with COVID-19, I mean, we made that back in like, I think March. <laughs> it was it was a little later. Um, yeah. And we were just talking April, about this yeah. yesterday. We're like, sadly, that PSA is still relevant today because, you know, we're in this time in recent headlines, you know, a, a Thai man was killed, mm-hmm. you know, beaten to death. Um, in San Francisco, slammed to the ground, slammed violently, slammed to the ground in in San Francisco, unprovoked, no reason at all. Um, several elderly people, you know, a Korean woman was punched while a man in in New York was his, at the subway was his face was slashed by someone. Um, you know, it's almost every day. There's like another occurrence where it's almost open season on Asian Americans. Now, um, are all of them racially motivated? 
we're not completely sure. A lot of them are when the when the racial slurs are coming out and or even graffiti being painted on. Um, there was a, a Chinese international school um, in San Francisco where there was racial slurs, graffiti painted on the side. I mean, these are hate crimes. What happened starting in 2020 could not have just been a COVID thing. Uh, mm. I mean, it, it's something that has has been in the hearts and the minds of people pre-COVID. And unfortunately, COVID, I think, is used as an excuse mm. in order to have fear, in order to act out on those things that people have already been feeling in their hearts and their minds. I can't believe that this just happened within a couple of months. And all of a sudden, oh, all of a sudden, I hate Asian people. These things have been in the hearts and minds of people for a long time. And this has been the year to where they felt justified that they could react to it. It's unfortunate. Some people even justify it by saying, well, I'm not attacking them. But then they'll be talking behind their back. They'll be posting all this racial rhetoric. But we're not violent. You know, I'm just speaking my mind and and saying all these hateful things. Or it's things, just a joke. Right? I mean, or that's just, the other or thing. it's, it's just like, a joke, mm-hmm. right? It does, you, and then, but the Bible says your tongue is, is like a small little rudder. And that thing steers a big giant ship, right? Yeah. And, and people say sticks and stones may break my bones, but will never hurt you, right? No. Words will kill you. Yeah. They will eat you up from the inside and the things. And so just because you're not physically violent, it doesn't dismiss all the things that are being said in private and in public. Uh, those are just as bad. We've yeah. seen the power of words in the past year, even as people yeah. have um, spoken things that have ultimately incited more fear and anger. And you think about how President Trump used China flu mm-hmm. and <laughs> Yeah. China virus. I mean, I heard someone say that recently and I kind of was like, I, this is a year later and it's a world pandemic. What are you talking about? And and it's that exactly that because those are things that stick in our head, mm-hmm. right? And we hear it and we kind of file it away and it and it colors what we see. It, it like is this lens over how we view the world. And I know those words are really powerful. Well, I really applaud the way you all have taken up this platform that you have and used it to open conversation about these topics and to wade into the uncomfortable conversations. I'm so thankful for your work and I've just really enjoyed following where it's taken you this year. I know it's not been at all what you expected because mm-hmm. um, I think your I think your debut for your Far East Deep South documentary was supposed to be right as COVID broke out, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, we had two days uh, at a, a, a real theater. movie theater. Um, so we are uh, blessed in that sense. We got to actually see our movie on the on the big screen before everything shut down. And then the rest of the festival got canceled. So I've seen it at some virtual festivals throughout the year. <laughs> it's all been in line. We, we had, you know, 5.1 surround sound, you know, <laughs> and, um, and, and it, yeah, this yeah. was the year it was supposed to, last year it was supposed to be the year that it all came together and, and it fell apart. But in some ways, God has really used that in an amazing yes. way. And I'm just yes. I'm just so excited to see what he's going to do with it because it, yeah. I think it's opened up whole new avenues for people that maybe uh, have a new perspective on wanting to understand our history and wanting to yeah. understand our role in it. Yeah. Um, so if people are interested, our listeners are interested in in digging more into your work, where do they go? Go to FarEastDeepSouth.com for information about our film. You can watch the trailer, find out when our upcoming screenings are. Um, Our film is also available for licensing for educational institutions. Or if you have Canopy on your campus too, um, you could watch our film that way. You can contact Um, us directly and organize a private screening event for your church or organization or community group. 
we're doing those as well. Yeah, we're doing a lot of speaking and facilitating these conversations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other thing is we're, we're having a really exciting broadcast debut in May. We don't have um, a date yet. The date to be announced, you have to check so our website. Follow us on the website. But it'll be on PBS, um, which we're really excited. Awesome. And, you know, for those of you who've seen the film, you'll know that there are threads of, of faith and some very, very, you know, strong testimony from his father um, in the film that um, we're really glad that a general audience is going to get to mm-hmm. see this. Um, and that's really our hope is that to bring some of the history and a worldview, especially seeing this Chinese Christian family, um, you know, in, I guess, a, a whole lot of households um, and that this is part of, uh, of America and this is part of regular life. And so we're main, mainstreaming what it's like to be an Asian American, but also I think what it's like to be, you know, an Asian Christian. And we certainly hope the church and community of faith will take this as an opportunity to lead the charge, um, to, to fight against um, racism, to to hold truth to love and to build awareness of our everyone's shared history in this country and to realize that understanding and knowing what happened in the past will allow you to understand what's happening now. And, and only then can we go and create a better future. We don't have to live in the past or even identify or define ourselves by the negative things in the past, but we have a bright future in Christ that we can take those experiences and lead into a better future. Yeah. And of course, you know, feel free to follow us on social media as well. Um, Our film is at Far East Deep South and Twitter is at Far East Deep So. um, And individually, you can find our our handles on those websites as well. Yeah. I can't wait for our listeners to see this. Your personal Instagram sites are super fun to follow. So I really encourage that. (laughs) I just post pictures of penguins and Garfield. No. (laughs) As always, they're great. Well, thank you so much both of you for sharing, not just uh, about your work, but your, these are your lives. And so you've, you've been really um, vulnerable with us mm-hmm. and just open your hearts. And we're just so grateful for that and really look forward to seeing where God takes that in the future. Thank, thank you, you guys so much. so much. And thank you for having these tough conversations, but we hope we can continue to build each other up and do these conversations in love. Thank you for joining us today for the Race and Redemption podcast. Make sure not to miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button on our page wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at Race and Redemption so you can join the conversation today. This episode was produced by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions. superhero fly through the sky and save the whole world instead of living a lie no more laughing till you're silly and you're out of your mind when the girl to your left and the boy down the cries no more living in a nation that has money to store even when poor we have more than the country next door no more hating on your sister or on anyone else no more killing your brother for the sake of yourself no more giving man a fish so he can eat for a day let's teach the man the fish before we send him on his way we can all make that decision individually and change this world for the better eventually Turn it upside down.